Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. John, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, man. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Uh, I'm John Lewis, I'm professor at Oregon State University. I teach, I have a great job. I teach film history. I watch movies, write about movies, talk about movies. Movies are a fun subject. I've been getting very interested in, I think once I, I took a class in school and I learned how like all the camera angles. And then once I started watching films, I started noticing like, well, they used a low shot here. They used a high shot here, but then it got me interested into the history of film. So how did you get started into, you know, teaching about film and looking into the history? Well, I, I was getting a degree in something else and um, a master's and I just started taking film classes. I'm not sure why and uh, was kind of good at it and kind of liked it a lot and liked it better than what I was studying. So um, I, I thought, well, you know, what am I going to do next? Uh, and a recruiter from actually from USC was down and saying, well, you know, you could get a degree in film. And I didn't actually know that that was possible. Um, at the time, and because film schools now, everybody knows about film schools, but um, I'm quite a bit older than you. So back then, uh, you know, we didn't, nobody, at least I didn't even know you could get a PhD in film. And then um, I ended up going to UCLA. And uh, uh, once I was there, I worked a little in the industry and I worked, you know, towards my PhD and then decided to go into, uh, in into teaching college as opposed to working in the industry um and here i am when it comes to teaching about film i mean do you where do you typically focus i mean i, I it makes more sense like we start talking about like camera angles or directing it seems like a class obviously could be taught but when you start learning about like film history i was like what and then you kind of learn how complex it was i mean at least for me and my personal experience looking through film history i've started to notice that there's a lot going on whether it's celebrities whether it's fandom whether it's just how movie history in general and then it becomes a topic of discussion i have plenty of friends that do film podcasts that just talk about certain movies and things i would never even think of like you have to watch like i think i've only seen a couple bloopers or um you know, background on a DVD or something of like a favorite movie, but you start learning like, well, there all there's a lot that actually went into like this two minute scene, you know, and then you kind of start picking up on a favorite actor and learning their biography or learning their history, and you realize kind of like get a better understanding of Hollywood in general. Yeah, well, I I, I actually don't teach camera angles and and uh, I don't teach how to make movies and I don't necessarily teach sort of how to read or analyze movies i i teach movies in history movies and history and the history of movies and the background behind the history of movies as well too so like the cultural impact like when did movies like movies have always been at least from my whole generation and my whole life i've only known movies but you know the evolution of it um if you want to take me into like maybe where it started 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> do you have Do you have uh, ten weeks? Um, <laughs> well, uh, very quickly, you know, in in eighteen uh, late eighteen eighties, early eighteen nineties, there were these experiments with go, sort of making the transition from still photography to to moving pictures. And Edison is certainly the the driving force behind this. And really, it begins around 1894, 1895. And you have this sort of evolution of projected motion pictures to paying audiences. And really, by, by the early 20th century, you have narrative films, films that tell stories. And then you have multi-shot films, which means films that are constructed of more than one one load of the camera, one shot, because the first films were just, you put a 30 second magazine into a into the camera and you just shoot it start to end. And the movie begins when you turn on the camera and it ends when you, when you run out of film. So no retakes. Uh, no, no. And, and uh, then eventually, you know, you start to have what are called multi-shot films where the idea of like assembling films from shots comes into play um and then you know the speed at which it's developed is 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 pretty fast that you go from multi-shot films that tell a kind of rudimentary tiny little vignette not even really a story to films that you know by 1903 you know you've got trip to the moon in france and you've got uh great train robbery in the u.s you know films that tell a full narrative start start to end a story i mean they're short they're you know, uh, not 90 minutes long or 120 minutes long. They're short, but still, uh, like contemporary movies, they they tell a story from start to end. And <laughs> I guess I can skip the rest. I mean, the rest is is just the evolution and maturity of the medium. Yeah. So with the reason I asked that question from starting at the beginning to the point we are at now, you can start, I would ask you the question, what do you think would be the most cultural significance? I mean, you start to notice that the movies really do start depicting the times. I noticed this through comic books as well, too. There's a golden age of comics and it became a little bit more relative to, I guess, popular culture as well, too. But movies, I mean, starting from the 1920s on so on to we got a bunch of fantasy movies. I just saw Avatar, too. It's a very long movie. Um, yeah, everything's three hours now. Babylon's yeah. <laughs> three hours too. Um, you would think with our attention spans, we wouldn't be able to do that, but that was a long one. But um, I, for me, I started kind of noticing, especially around like a lot of like the seventies, especially sixties, um, this rise in kind of counterculture and kind of learning about the movie history, I guess, around then. But what is your particular interest? Like, where do you have this a, a certain time period that grabs you about film where you would, I wouldn't say consider it the best time, but one that just means a lot more to you than maybe certain other time periods? Well, I, I, I'd say I'm, I'm pretty much a post-war as in post-World War II historian. Um, you know, I've written on the whole history of, of American cinema, but um, I focus mostly on American cinema after World War II. And at least in the last, oh, I'd say 15 years or so, um, I'm mostly interested in writing histories of people who um, sort of don't quite make it in Hollywood. So rather than writing about the best films and the best directors and the movie stars who live kind of wonderful lives, um, 
uh, I, I'm riding on those who get kind of kicked to the curb. Can you give me some names of some people who've got kicked to the curb? When you said don't make it, you made it sound like Walter Cronkite, where I was like, oh, wait, they're dead. Yeah, yeah, most of them are. Yeah, yeah, that's sort of what happens. So I, I got interested in, in I, you know, I'm a, I'm a college professor, so I'm, I'm at the very top of your broadcast. I'm going to say that I tend to give very long answers because that's kind of how we operate. Uh, so um, I, I was teaching a class on film noir. And I showed three films just kind of by chance, all sort of in the space of a couple of weeks. So Sunset Boulevard, um, In a Lonely Place, and and a film, those two most people know, but and then a film called um, The Big Knife, which is a, a blacklist era film that's, I think, really fascinating. But I didn't really think there was all that much in common between these three films, except that they're set in Los Angeles and... I didn't even remember when I assigned them that all three have a a kind of fundamental relationship to the to the film industry. It's funny I didn't make that connection. Anyway, when I saw them all three together, I thought, wow, you know, there here are three film noirs. Um, the one thing they have in common is a dead body of someone either directly or tangentially related to the industry. All three are about people failing in the industry, either forgotten by the industry in Sunset Boulevard. Norma Desmond is the silent film star is forgotten by the industry. Or um, William Holden plays, uh, what is his name? Joe Gillis, who's a wannabe screenwriter and he's failing too. And then in, in a Lonely Place, Humphrey Bogart plays this this guy Dick Steele and he's you know he comes back from the war and he can't he can't resume his career as a screenwriter he's just too much of a psychological mess and there's a dead body in that one too a woman who who comes to his house to read a to sort of summarize a novel that he's supposed to write a screenplay about and she leaves his house and then and then is murdered and then in um uh Big sleep. I mean, big, big knife, rather. And sorry to ruin the film for some people. He kills himself at the end. Um, and 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 he's he's a big movie star, the character in, in that film. Um, and it's so I thought, well, wow, you know, what's what's this about? You know, and then I started looking in because I'm a historian. I started, you know, just reading newspapers from the from the late 40s, trying to figure out what was going on. And I was struck by um, the importance in sort of the Los Angeles Times and um, New York Times of the, the Black Dahlia killing. So the, the book that became Hard Boiled Hollywood begins with the Black Dahlia killing, the, the you know, the horrific and still unsolved murder of a, a uh, kind of Hollywood wannabe, a young woman who goes, she begins in, you know, she's she's in Massachusetts and she travels all the way to LA to become a movie star because somebody told her, you know, you're beautiful, you should be in pictures. Well, a lot of people heard that sentence and went to Hollywood and a lot of people don't make it. And in a way, she didn't make it in the most dramatic and horrific way because she came out and she fell into the, the bar scene in LA, which was really, there was a, a lot of, scary people there and she found a really scary person in um 
at one of these bars or at one of her encounters and and was killed and and then literally dropped by the side of the road that she was killed one place put in a car and then just dropped by the side of the road and i thought well you know what is the relationship between this historical event that had you know was a front page news for two weeks and films in hollywood made about dead bodies <laughs> you know what is the connection and i i sort of argued that there's a real connection between the two. It's fascinating to me. I mean, obviously there's a bunch of events that happen all the time, so it's hard to kind of, you know, keep it in the public focus for long, but I've never heard of Elizabeth Short um, at all. I knew Marilyn Monroe. That's the most famous one that always gets talked about, about a celebrity that, you know, had a tragic death and it told the industry played on her. And obviously there's a whole bunch of other things out there that also get mentioned. But when I heard Elizabeth Short, I had to look her up. I've heard the story a little bit, I think, prior, long ago, a couple of years ago. Um, I don't necessarily know how she died. I just know that they found her kind of mutilated. And I don't really know the history about her as well, too. But are you saying that these three films that you saw that kind of had like this connection were kind of playing on was I mean, was it around the same time period that she was found? So like it was kind of like not really, a, 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 I guess, a film about her death. It's more about just like using that as like, here's a way to go. Yeah, I mean, uh, the first two films I mentioned are 1950. Uh, so three years out, Short was found dead in, in um, uh, 1947. And then um, Big Knife is 50, I want to say like 55, but that's kind of a guess. But the other two in 1950. So pretty close. Um, it If you, if uh, I, I mean, I knew about, the case in a way, because I had read, there's a, a terrific novel by, by James Elroy, um, who's a, you know, a kind of crime, true crime and, and not true crime uh, writer. And I, I think he's just a, an, an amazing writer. Um, and he has a book called The Black Dahlia. So that's the first I had heard of it, even as a film historian. Um, and that's a fictional account. And then um, when I started going back, I mean, in, in a way, this is the sort of starting point for for the kinds of histories I write, I just start reading newspapers from a time period. And, and this story was the story in 1947. I mean, this was, there were a lot of other things going on in Los Angeles and in America, but the, the Black Dahlia case was front page news for months. I mean, months. And uh, partly because of its grisly nature, because um, it was truly horrific, but partly, um, because it seemed to speak to a kind of larger problem of people going to Los Angeles, going to LA after the war, because LA sort of explodes in population after World War II, uh, of people going out there to sort of either get discovered or to reinvent themselves or to start over after the war. And here's this young woman who went out there, maybe for all those reasons, and um, kind of fell in. Uh, you know, she didn't get what she wanted. You know, she wasn't discovered in Hollywood. Um, she kind of didn't even know how to get discovered. She had no discernible talents, so she wasn't really an actress. And uh, you know, she 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 found trouble. And um, then I started looking at it, and I, I don't know if you've read the book, but in the book, I I chronicle a whole series of women who um, who disappear similarly, um, and are. Are, are called body dump killings. It's a terrible term, but that's what, what was 
called it to time, and that is that they're killed one place and then just sort of drop someplace else. And Los Angeles is, I mean, today we think of Los Angeles as the sprawling metropolis, but in 47, it's just beginning to sort of sprawl, especially east. And um, Short was dropped on a street that's now in, in, you know, Los Angeles, you know, this crowded part of Los Angeles. But at the time, uh, she was dumped in an empty lot. You know, she was dumped just outside sort of civilized, you know, built up Los Angeles. And I thought that was kind of interesting, too, um, this idea of being dumped by the side of the road. And then I sort of expanded it, I guess, metaphorically to refer to people who are sort of dumped in Hollywood, just sort of sort of trying to make it and it just doesn't doesn't quite pan out well it's one of those horror stories that a parent will tell a kid that wants to go to california go to hollywood and live this life on the big city i mean that was always like i mean i think that's probably any kid is in their 20s or something like that usually wants to go to be a movie star or something like that and then usually you hear a story like that i've heard that before um about just how corrupt it is a little bit but when it comes to like the whole discussion of body dump killings i mean I, that's new to me i mean i've heard a couple of stories but i would figure i mean did when you looked at these newspapers was it strictly just in los angeles that this was happening or did you see and did, did the story even about elizabeth short break out somewhere else where there was I, I i'm surprised that it doesn't get taught more it doesn't get told a lot more it's like marilyn monroe still gets mentioned today and she's like a i mean she's still a pop icon but you would think a story like that as well too would get mentioned. well yeah well monroe was a movie star and elizabeth short was in sadly kind of nobody um because she wasn't a celebrity and in our culture if you're not a celebrity especially in los angeles then you're nobody um i was interested in her and then interested in all these other young women who who you know there was a whole string of women disappearing women murdered in los angeles um and that became kind of news and similar to what you were saying about the warnings of going to the big city you know that you know it's it's a complicated potentially dangerous place um did anybody suspect a serial killer or something oh yeah i mean if you go online and look up black dahlia you'll you'll never come back you know um i mean it's a little like uh, i i know you're interested in the jfk assassination it's a little like that you know there's no shortage of people who are fascinated by this this event and because it is technically an unsolved crime um people are solving it i think i'm i wasn't interested i mean and maybe this is my own sort of narrow focus but i wasn't interested in who killed her you know i think you know it's a terrible terrible crime i don't have a theory on who did it um and kind of not that interested in it i'm sort of more interested in the kind of larger significance to what's going on in in Hollywood at the time, what's going on in Los Angeles, and looking at Elizabeth Short is maybe an expression of, or or just one of many, just the most dramatic of many young women who went to Los Angeles and didn't find what they wanted after the war. Now, with um, all with with a lot of these kind of murders, was there at least pressure on the industry to? change or to do something that would make it easier or at least any type of significance when it came to just a closer eye on the industry in general as well too i mean there is this idea out there you go to hollywood all your dreams will come true and then the, and obviously that's not 
real in all everyone's scenario or cases but i feel like i mean a more rational take on things too like i mean there's warnings and i think even for my generation a bunch of child stars that went through some horrible uh kind of past as well too it's like you got to be careful what a director can or won't tell you what to do i guess um how far you can really go to get a part and i mean it's playing on the idea of fame and that's everyone's kind of not everyone but there's a lot of people out there that just kind of get lost in that aspect of fame and you know trying their best to make it and it's not an easy thing to do it's like being a musician i think it's like two percent of people actually make it yeah um but of course if you have self-belief you believe you're one of the two percent that are going to make it which is you know part of the problem because you know, going to Hollywood because somebody told you you're pretty enough to be a movie star. Well, it's a little more complicated than that. Um, and maybe maybe more than a little bit naive to go out to Hollywood to hope for that. But I, I started to look into, because I was interested in it, because I, I, I don't know, I'll sound more like a film historian here for a second. But there were two big events that happened in, in 1947, 1948, right after the war ends, that that really changed Hollywood in fundamental ways. Um, the first is the beginnings of the blacklist. You have the House Committee hearings um, in the fall of 1947, and you have the beginning of the Hollywood blacklist after that. Um, and that really changes, in obvious ways, workforce relations in the industry. The second is this thing called the Paramount decision, which is um, uh, U.S. v. Paramount Pictures. It's a Supreme Court decision that forces the the film companies to divest interest in one aspect of their corporate monopolies. So all this will take too long. So I'll just go through it very. I've never quickly. heard of the Paramount. I've heard of the blacklist. I've never heard of the Paramount decision. Okay, so the Paramount decision um, before World War II. Uh, so in the thirties, uh, the Justice Department, U.S. Justice Department, begins to go after the Hollywood studios because they're both vertical and horizontal monopolies. They are, they control everything from development through exhibition. They even own movie theaters in those days. So the feeling was, you know, for anybody to have a fair shake in the movie industry, these big companies have to be broken up, that they're monopolies. And there, there are a series of agreements and, 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 and the agreements fall apart. And then there are, subsequent efforts and then more agreements where the studios are just trying to keep the Justice Department from doing this, but at the same time making promises that they'll 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 change their business models, which they don't do. Then the war happens and there's no time for this. Then the war ends and kind of immediately after the war ends, the Justice Department resumes what they were doing. And um the case goes all the way to the Supreme Court in 1948, and the court case is officially known as U.S. v. Paramount Pictures, but all the other studios are named after. So it's all the the big eight, the big five and the little three, but the eight studios that run Hollywood, they're all named in the suit. And uh, the Supreme Court decides that they're monopolies and forces them to divest, sell off one aspect of their industry monopoly. And because the person who wrote the decision was William O. Douglas, who was uh, on the Supreme Court and had been the head of the FCC, um, um, no, FTC, sorry, he, he wrote the decision that um, said that what they would have to sell off is are their movie theaters. 
And because in the old days, if you were Paramount, you would buy a property, let's say a novel, and then you would develop it into a movie, then you'd make a movie, then you'd send it to a lab, then you would make multiple copies of your film, and then you would send it out, and then you would show it in your own theater. And you own the lab, and you own the site of production, and everybody in the movie worked for you. And you could see that you controlled it from idea to existence. And uh, so Douglas decided, well, I'm going to, I'm uh, I'm going to focus on 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 the tail end of this movie theaters, and he forced the studios sell off their movie theaters, which they did over a kind of couple of year period, and this screwed up the theaters big time. I mean, studios big time, because they were borrowing money against the value of the theaters to make movies, and now suddenly they weren't able to borrow money to make movies. Oh, I didn't even think of that. I was because I was wondering in my local theater they had Top Gun in there all summer, and it was a thing i was like i've never seen a movie like be in the movie theaters the whole entire summer before usually like a month and then it's gone it was like no they did that before they were going to put it on a streaming service and it was like a contracted deal that they had to be able to and you're just like but what you just said about oh my that's i never even that's where my brain went was the the whole top gun scenario but so that way they were using money from the movie theaters to make their films and then yeah yeah because you have to borrow money right um to make a movie let's say movie cost in those days a million dollars so where are you going to get a million dollars from? Um, so if you go to a bank and say, I'm making a movie, they'll say, yeah, but we don't know anything about movies. And uh, we're not going to bet a million dollars that your movie's going to hit. What do you have that we can foreclose upon? And the answer was, well, we have property uh, in New York that we have a theater on. And that's worth X number of dollars. And that's how they were borrowing money. And then when Paramount decision comes along and forces them to sell the movie theaters, they have cash but no movie theater. And I don't know, you can't borrow money against cash. Uh, you can borrow money against property, but not cash. So the studios were kind of in a bind. I mean, it really was, on a certain level, um, it, it it shook the industry. So I was sort of aware of the blacklist and the Paramount decision. And the industry is a little bit beset by these two things. Um, and the and the studio system begins to sort of crumble and and uh all these people are going out west to be discovered and there's no hollywood anymore i mean hollywood's changing in a way that nobody even in the industry can understand and you have someone like elizabeth short goes out there to be discovered and she can't in a way she can't even find the industry you know where is it I mean, it's I, I don't know if it's still like this today, but I mean, I know there's like a basic function of like, obviously, there's giant multiple studios like Warner Brothers. I didn't even know Warner Brothers from when I talked to uh, Bob Herzberg, who made a book called uh, Hoover's Invasion, basically onto the bureau on screen is what it's called. Um, and I've heard Warner Brothers name get mentioned, which I didn't even think they were around back then, but they were. Um, when oh, yeah, was- the brothers Warner were <laughs> they were they were the uh, there at the beginning. Yeah. But there's so many influences, like when you look at like having a communist view could, you know, there's an invasion into Hollywood looking for communists. And you just like you don't realize, like, it's more than just stepping off of a bus and being like, I want to be a movie star. It's like you got to be really careful with a lot of stuff. But I mean, the industry, when it shattered, 
the issue with that is how many people are coming off the bus from whoever to, to go to West Coast to be a film star, and then now you don't have a certain one bracket area to go get your film or be uh, do, do a cast role or something. You now have all these independent producers or the industry kind of opens up to just a common person with a camera on the street that says, I want to put you in a film and the dangers behind that. Like I start wondering, when does the cushioning for actors come in? When does there need to be guidelines and safety precautions to make an industry that's fit for people that want to start and have their life go into film? Yeah. So none of that exists. And the studios, what used to happen so in, in the, let's say in the 1930s, you, you want to be a movie star. You know, if you can get a studio contract, they'll develop you. And often it's a multi-year, uh, what's called option contract. And you could be at the studio for a while, sort of learning the trade. And there was a sort of route, you know, that you begin here and the end would be movie star. That would be great. But in the meantime, there was, there was a system that existed. But the system's kind of broken up because of the blacklist and because of Paramount decision. And because the studios are sort of having to figure figure out a whole new business model. And then you have this sort of flood of people still coming out to get discovered, and there's no one to discover them. So one of the things that I discovered happened, and this, again, relates to young women coming out, like Elizabeth Short, though this didn't happen to her in particular, because she didn't even get that far. But what a lot of women discovered was there was no way to even talk to a Hollywood producer anymore. There was no, there was no sort of system of getting discovered and then getting developed at the studio and getting small parts and then bigger parts and then, you know, maybe maybe become at least at least a successful actor or actress and and movie star. There's no way to do that anymore. So these women discovered that one one place you could get found was at nightclubs. But the problem was the only way to get into a nightclub was to have a male escort. And the only male escorts who were pretty willing to take you to nightclubs were gangsters. So all these young women would come out to Hollywood and discover, much to their misfortune, that one way to get in front of a Hollywood producer and say, here I am, and you know, I'd really like to be in movies was to was to go to nightclubs with with gangsters. And you have all these women who got involved with gangsters, Jean Spangler being one of them. I, I tell her story in the book. She disappears, never, never to be found again. And she was involved with this guy, little Davy Ogle, who was kind of uh, affiliated with Mickey Cohn, who was, you know, the big the big Los Angeles gangster at the time. And uh, Ogle disappeared. And, you know, some of the theories are that Gene Spangler, because she was maybe with him at the wrong moment, disappeared along with him. Um, she just went out one night to go to the clubs with Davey and was never seen again. And uh, she had been in, um, she had small parts in a handful of films and she was trying to become an actress. But again, had no idea, you know, how do I get seen? How do I how do I get from role one to role two to the slightly bigger role three, slightly bigger role four? You know, how do I do this? And she got in with some pretty, pretty scary bad people. As soon as you um, mentioned the nightclub thing, my first thought went to my head was like the mob. I was like, the mob is so drenched into Hollywood and some, I mean, there's theories that Steven Seagal um, got back to making movies because the mob wanted them to. 
but the mob was seriously influenced into Hollywood. So that's a, that's a real, that's a real problem because I mean, if you look at a person's passion, especially you're a young, you know, kid or young adults and you're thinking about the dream of Hollywood and you're kind of looking at the end goal of walking on the red carpet or doing whatever, it doesn't matter. I mean, a mob person can be very convincing and next thing you know, you get lost and you end up, you know, as one of these bodies that get dumped. Yeah. I mean, another thing that happened is a lot of these women ended up getting involved in crimes. There was a thing called the Badger Game. And what you would do is you would go to the club, you being this young female aspirant, and you want to make it in Hollywood. And Picture me like Marilyn Monroe. Well, see, yeah. Um, but if you can imagine yourself in this situation, you desperately want to become a movie star. At some point, you're starting to realize, okay, this isn't going to happen. But you're so entrenched with these gangsters. So you become part of this other thing. It was called the Badger Game, where you would seduce somebody in in power in Hollywood. Um, and there would be photographs taken or a fake boyfriend would show up at the end of the liaison and say, you know, what are you doing, you know, with my boy, my girlfriend or my wife? And they would blackmail the Hollywood producer, whatever, because they wouldn't want any of this stuff, stuff to get out. And um, that was called the Badger Game. And it's quite possible Gene Spangler was involved in that. But a lot of young women, you know, at some point, you know, you're pursuing a dream and the rational side, side of your brain is just saying, OK, this, you know, I've been here 10 years. It's not going to happen. Uh, but I'm doing this other thing with these other people. And a lot of women got involved in that, you know. They got exploited in other ways, certainly sexually. Uh, and I found that there was a whole rash of this. And um, the industry didn't, I, I got no sense that the industry, whatever there was of an industry at the time, didn't make much of an effort to do anything about it. But um, there were efforts, community efforts in Los Angeles to deal with these lost women. And there are all these articles um, in Variety Magazine, which is the you know, the the industry trade journal uh, and also in the L.A. Times. And there were a whole bunch of other daily newspapers in, in Los Angeles at the time. Uh, there were stories about these lost women and then efforts on the part of, you know, often often, um, you know, sort of social workers or, you know, they were called women, uh, women's uplift societies. You know, were just trying to rescue these women because it was, it was a pre pretty big social problem. Well, how much power does how much power does the industry or the social workers have against the mobbers? See, that's the issue. Is that like even if eventually they can't get into Hollywood, like they're realizing they're them they're too entrenched with the mob or they're too entrenched with bad characters, and now they're stuck at this point. The other outlet for them that gets dropped in their face probably is the fact that the mob kind of runs the nightclub. They can just sing or do something even if they're not really that good, and that keeps them stop thinking about all the doubts in Hollywood, and there's just so much influences that start to happen, and then, I mean, the whole blackmail and all that type of stuff – that that's throughout so much of that history with the mob as well too and politicians and just so oh, – that's so – God, that makes the industry – I had never even thought of that. Yeah, so that's the history I write. You know, rather than writing about, you know, somebody who in the fifties became a huge star and everything was wonderful, you know, I get that that's interesting. And the same, you know, I don't write about important films and important directors. I write about people who um, had dreams, uh, but 
it it kind of didn't work out. And they're really interesting stories and stories that, you know, other historians don't seem interested in telling. And those are the stories I tell. Why do you think the historians don't talk about that? Or why, is there even a movie out there that really kind of paints the dark side of Hollywood like this, like one that really hits the big time that's, you know, in theaters and really showing about like this kind of dark side to it as well, too? Like I said, when I learned about the history of film, I didn't realize how dark it was until I started kind of diving a little bit deeper into it. Oh, I don't know. Um, uh, you know, I, th I think uh, The Big Knife, again, this is a film that isn't isn't particularly well known, uh, is about a movie star named Charlie Castle. And um, the film begins with him sort of trying to get out of his studio contract. And the studio doesn't want to let him out of his contract. And um, they have something on him. He was involved in a hit and run accident, drunken hit and run accident. So they have this on him and they don't bring it up until he doesn't want to work for them anymore. And then they bring it up and they sort of blackmail him or try to blackmail him into, into signing, signing a new contract. And then you get a sense of the extent of the cover up that they did on his behalf and why they think he owes them as opposed to the other way around. And um, then a gossip columnist shows up and, and, that was a big part of this year in Hollywood. Um, gossip industry was huge and suddenly independent of the studios and people like Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper and Walter Winchell had a lot of power in this era. Another thing I write about, not to plug the book, but I write about it in the book, that gossip's a really big thing. And this film, The Big Night Knife, really covers that. And in the end, again, I'm giving away the end, but it's it, you can kind of see it coming his only way out is to kill himself there's no other choice and you get a sense of i think in 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 a in a pretty in a historically accurate way you get a sense of what it might have been like to be on the wrong side of things in 1955 um to be on the wrong side of the blacklist to be on the wrong side of of some scandal that the studio is protecting you from um, to want to be an independent because a lot of what what you get in the late fifties, especially, but starting even earlier than that, you get some actors trying to break free of the studio system and become independent contractors where they can sign with any studio to appear in any film they want. That wasn't possible before, really, the fifties, um, and so that film, The Big Knife. Um, which is based on a play by Clifford Odets, who himself was on the wrong side of the blacklist, um, is is pretty fascinating. That blacklist is like not just having extracurricular activities that the studio doesn't want you to do, but I mean, the power with it. I mean, if acting is your whole world and now you can never get a job in the industry because you've been put on this blacklist and nobody is even going to bother giving you the time. And it's not even aspect of like, they believe the people that are, might be saying like, Hey, don't talk to this person. He has this, this, this. It's just an aspect of, if I go and do this, it's going to mess up my relationship with the other industry or whatever other person that put this person on the blacklist. And then it's like, to that person, that's their whole world. The only way out is something like, killing yourself or doing because that's that their whole life is over at that point it's like what do you turn to next do you end up doing some gang activity or do you get pushed to doing drugs i mean you end up getting put in a position where i mean the amount of stuff you could do that could get you put on the blacklist is ridiculous that'd be done day one just because i wouldn't even think like oh crap i wasn't supposed to talk to that person i didn't know 
Well, yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, it was guilt by association. And you said you did a thousand interviews. So that's a lot of associations. <laughs> so that's a lot of people. Uh, yeah, I, I I talk about this, you know, when I when I teach blacklists in class and we can take sort of Dalton Trumbo, for example, because he was in the Hollywood 10. One of He was probably the most famous person in the Hollywood 10, the first group that were held to account for the political activity. And, um, you know, he was making at the time something like $75,000 a picture. That's $1947. So, you know, easily add a zero to that. So he was he was one of the highest paid screenwriters at the time. He had a family, he had a mortgage. It's the only thing he ever did for a living. You know, so all, if you're given the choice to sort of rat out a few people, maybe even people you don't even like that much, personally, uh, or losing everything, it takes a lot to, to opt for losing everything. Uh, but he did. Um, and and eventually went to jail for contempt of Congress. And then when he came out, um, you know, his career was sort of over and he was able to to write and have other people lay claim to what he had written, but he wasn't making $75,000 a picture anymore. Um, yeah, we all have responsibilities. You know, I, 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 I often think if I was his age at at the time something like this happened, you know, I would hope I'd have the courage to do what he did. But do you think it's just the money though? Do you think it's also the fact that like when you start getting your face basically on people's walls, on lunch boxes, on all that? I mean, the most dangerous thing at that point is like you don't want that to go away. I mean, giving up the spotlight is one of the hardest no, things. No, no, you know, th that's the hard part. Did there's um again when I talk about Trumbo, because I think he's such an interesting guy, um he 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 missed his sons. For me, I think what brings it home, uh, uh, the story home, is uh, he's in jail for a year, so he misses his son's birthday, and he sends his son this this birthday card where he writes his son a poem. Um, and it's like a birthday poem, and it's really sweet. It's it's very sort of Lewis Carroll like, and I think you know that, you know, think about punishments. You've gone to jail for a year. You haven't seen your son for a year. Um, you're sending him a letter on his birthday, not seeing him on his birthday. Um, and you've done all of this for a principal. Uh, that's, that's a lot. It uh, brings in a different perspective. I've seen movies when an actor or a famous person doesn't have any relationship with their kids. And you always wonder like, well, how could you not have a relationship with your kids? And that just makes me think like, I mean, how many people were just afraid that, you know, they, they'd end up losing their whole career on the basis of they're going to get too attached to their. Kids. Yeah. I mean, that happened in academia too, um, where people had to sign loyalty oaths and refuse to, or people were fired for supposedly having communist political views, or even in some cases, scientists teaching, teaching work by Soviet scientists. You could get fired in the fifties for doing that. Um, my motto is everyone's a spy. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, you know, uh, those were tough, those were tough times. So I, I, I'm sort of fascinated by this sort of moment where uh, as if, as if Hollywood isn't complicated enough and as if the studios weren't already worried enough about having to sell all their theaters and figure out how to do business, 
you've got the government sort of initiating this this litmus test for whether you are you should be eligible or not to work in the industry and the blacklist holds for easily a decade um and uh i'm sort of fascinated by this moment of well who gets kicked to the side of the road in the blacklist you know plenty of people um who who lose 10 years of their productive lives and maybe never come back um what do you think about the influences? I mean, I, I I know more about the government influences in the Hollywood than I do about the mob, but it just seems like, you know, even if Hollywood is this kind of, it's like an open battlefield, I would say, from anybody to really have influence on there. I think eventually even the FBI started finding married men that were straight and had no scandals to them. And they go, you're going to be the FBI in all of our films that we make about the FBI. Because they, they, Hollywood at that point, there were people that had scandals that either were being covered up or whatever. So they found someone that was clear cut, at least as clear as it could be, didn't have a drinking problem or anything like that. And they're like, you're going to represent us on screen. And I would just think that they would continue with that person and try and keep them under like a private contract just because we want someone, we already have our person. We want to use you as much as we possibly can whenever the bureau gets made on screen or something like that. I mean, it leads into so much complexity with not just having communist views, but also like if you go out and drink, I don't know. I mean, it's not common today to drink and drive, but back then it wasn't even like a thought for a lot of people. So there were scandals like that. There was harassment against women as well, too. I think Sean Connery has the most famous interview where he, uh, he openly said that women deserve a smack. And we know that's not right today, but that's the times back then as well, too. So like there was a bunch of stuff where I just go, man, everything is either a press nightmare or it's a giant issue. And then I go, well, what's the press, I guess, complicity in all of it? I mean, were they okay being paid off by a Hollywood studio to keep a scandal under wraps? And what, where does the fall go to the independent journalists and what protection do they have? Well, the, the era we're talking about, the 40s and 50s, um, the scandal sheets break off from the studios. And, and, and yeah, they do make deals like we'll suppress this story if you give us a different story on someone else or you cooperate down the road. Um, but, you know, it's hard to imagine today the power of the syndicated scandal or syndicated gossip writers of the era. And here I'm talking about Walter Winchell, um, Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper. I mean, they were, I, I have a whole chapter on them uh, because their their power is just, just, unimaginable and even if you're a big movie star lucille ball for example had to had to be very very careful how she dealt with a a scandal um that emerged uh because she had she actually had registered as socialist um ball um but just to please her grandfather i mean a lot of these stories are like this that you know you just you know, you, you you fall on the wrong side of the blacklist, not because you're an ardent communist, like Dalton Trumbo, for example. You're you you've done it to please your, you know, your grandfather was a socialist, some somebody, so you 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 register as a socialist. And when Hopper found this out, Ball had to be so careful, because of course she had a popular television show, she was a big star. Um and uh there was this a whole PR campaign to make clear that Lucille Ball didn't have politics. She was like the character on the television show. You know, she 
you know, how could Lucy have politics? And um, uh, Desi has this famous line, the only thing about Lucy that's red is her hair, and even that's not real. Um, and uh, uh, so you had to be very careful no matter who you were, so that even if you're Lucille Ball, you have the most popular television show, everybody loves you. You think you could be anything you want. No, 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 no. And Hedda Hopper is more powerful than Lucille Ball. And and this becomes, you know, even, even for movie stars, you could get kicked to the curb if you fall on the wrong side of one of these people. There's a, you were asking about movies that, there's a movie called Sweet Smell of Success, which is loosely about Walter Winchell, one of the big three gossip, gossip figures of the era, uh, though they don't mention his name because you would never dare to do that. Uh, but there are historical biographical similarities, so you kind of know it's him, um, that Burt Lancaster did. And Lancaster was a huge star. And they had to be really careful with that. But that film, you were asking about a film that sort of shows the the the, the kind dark of side behind the dark side behind the scenes that that first of all it's a great movie but second of all it's 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 pretty accurate for how the gossip industry worked in, at the time i would have thought marilyn monroe would have been so powerful as a figure that even though she might have had some side stuff people still would have accepted her anyway um if any of those scandals would have came out you know before her death that she would have had this large amount of press or you know just Black, if she, I mean, could Marilyn Monroe be blacklisted? Is the question. I mean, I just think she was too powerful of a figure. Um, See, probably not. Um, but she wasn't powerful enough to get her husband a visa. So, um, Arthur Miller, um, uh, who, who she was married to, um, at one point couldn't get a visa, uh, but she could. Um, she's a complicated, you know. You end up falling into a whole different series of sort of rabbit holes, trapdoors, whatever, with her because you know her 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 very brief career was was um, well, it was really complicated, and and whether we'll ever know the truth about Monroe is you know there's dozens of biographies on her and movies made about her, but whether any of them are even remotely accurate, I don't know. Um, She's she's in a way such in 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 such a different place than a lot of these other people we're talking about. That's what my kind of main point is, is like imagine a figure that could actually break through the power of like just whatever that blacklisting would be um, that could really kind of change the industry in its own. I mean, see, I'd argue. Uh, yeah, just to interrupt you. I'd argue that that doesn't exist, that um, the studios have, especially in this era, but I I would say through most of their history are only um, superficially competitive. They are fundamentally collusive. They work together. What's good for the whole industry, that's how the rating system works. What's good for the whole industry um, is what matters. So that in the case of, of The Blacklist, so what if a movie star, even Humphrey Bogart had to apologize in, in variety for the appearance of having sympathies for communists. There's a very famous full page ad of, of Bogart and it just says, I am not a communist. Um, so even Bogart who was a much bigger star um, than, than Monroe was, certainly more entrenched in, in kind of studio Hollywood. Even he wouldn't have been able to bucket because 
however big Bogart is or was, Warner Brothers would have had to have walked away and no other studio would have picked up his contract. See, it's one thing if Warner Brothers fires him for, let's say, for being a communist, which he wasn't. Um, but let's say they did. Well, you would say, well, Bogart's such a big star. Columbia will pick him up or, you know, uh, Fox will pick him up. No, they won't because they've all agreed not to buck the system. So I actually don't think if if when she was signed to 20th Century Fox, Monroe, if it came out she was an actual communist or it came out that, you know, there was enough suspicion that she was a communist that this would be a problem and Fox fires and nobody else is picking up that contract. I agree. No matter how you. big you are. I agree with you on the monopoly thing, but I would also disagree on the point of I think the people – have a voice in that aspect of things. You've got people that would want to see Marilyn. Yeah, Monroe but you in the fifties, you'd be scared. The people are scared. What? Because yeah, yeah. Because being accused of being a communist could hurt you in almost any line of work. Yeah, so you wouldn't. I, I mean, you have a. We can't imagine a podcast in the fifties because they didn't <laughs> exist. But um, yeah, if you were a newspaper man and you covered the story and you wrote a favorable. Oh, poor Marilyn Monroe. She shouldn't have been. I mean, we're inventing. I hope nobody tunes in late and thinks we're talking about Marilyn Monroe being blacklisted. She wasn't um, and never, never came up. But let's say she was. And you wrote a, a piece as a journalist saying, oh, you know, this is all phonied up and, and she shouldn't have been blacklisted and we need to reinstate her immediately. And we all love her. You'd get fired. Well, that's like the guy who made the Yankee Doodle Dandy. He had um, something that the FBI made a file on um, that thought he was a communist sympathizer um, because he did he supported something that was going on. And then he makes the Yankee Doodle Dandy. And then Jared Hoover's like, no, we're good. He's good. He's a good guy. And the, the the studio just accepted him. And it's like, did he have to make that just to show like this idea of patriotism? And it's maybe I, I don't know that story, but maybe. But there's that's what that's the, the Marilyn Monroe. I mean, I feel like if someone labeled her a communist and she was blacklisted, if she, it, it, I'm not saying she was, I'm just saying if there was a scenario or timeline where she, I was, just have this bad feeling somebody's no, going to no, tune no, in late and say I, John Lewis said that Marilyn Monroe was blacklisted. No, nobody, I didn't. Nobody did. Um, but I, I would feel like so many people. It's much like there's a lot of people out there that have that have a voiced opinion about something, whether they're in a press office or not, it's just the public, which be like, Marilyn Monroe's not a communist. That was just a thing. And then that would expose the blacklist. I mean, when did the blacklist officially become this thing that the whole public became aware on to the point where they were like, okay, so this is just like the rock. If the rock had a scandal that came out, would people stop watching the rock? I mean, depending on what the scandal is, but if he just supported another country, like it's like John. Yeah, Cena but we saying, live a, yeah, but we live in a, different different world um you'd have to go back to the 50s and 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 have a feeling of the degree of risk you would have to appear sympathetic like frank sinatra hung out with like all these mob figures yet people still even love frank sinatra had to be very careful um and uh yeah yeah um and uh it would have ruined his career had 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 um these allegations evolved into into um a kind of public case it didn't um but there were all these accusations i write about i, I write a, quite a bit about sinatra actually in the book uh and he's an interesting case because he, he later became a kind of nixon and then reagan republican 
Uh, but early on, he was, you know, he was a good East Coast Democrat. Well, he wrote JFK's uh, uh, song called High Hopes. You know, he was uh, he was entrenched with the Kennedys uh, for a while. And he, he you know, in, in, like a lot of people in Hollywood, you know, his politics leaned progressive. Uh, but you had to be very careful about the distinction between progressive and communist. I mean, today we would think they're they're a miles and miles apart, but in the fifties that wasn't a perception. I'd argue pretty much nobody was too big. Um, we will never know because they it never came up. But if if Bogart has to take out a full page ad to make clear that he is a Roosevelt Democrat and not a left wing communist. You know, you don't get that much bigger than Bogart in the late 40s. So, well, well, I mean, from even a personal perspective of yours and also just from a film history perspective, do you think that this could have limited the number of films or film jobs that people took on because of this fear of the blacklist? Sure. Yeah, it had a, a, a chilling effect on content. You certainly, if you wrote a movie and the movie was perceived to be um, communist in some way, uh, yeah, you'd get investigated, and who needs that? Um, there are a couple of stories. I, I, I do think this is a fascinating moment in history. It's, um, there's a guy named Walter Bernstein. He may have just passed away. I, I'm not sure, but anyway, he he was a very young man uh, when the blacklist sort of hit, and um, he tells the story. He wrote an autobiography, and he tells the story of. That he actually went to a meeting because um, he had a crush on a on a on a young woman, and he was told that these left wing young women were loose. You know that he might he might get lucky with her, um, because because she was a political pro progressive. So he went to this meeting with like no politics of his own, and his photograph was taken at the meeting, and then he was called to account for it and said, "Well, you know, explain yourself," and you know by they asked him to name names of other people in the photograph and he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to be a rat. Uh, and he lost 10 years of his career for that moment. Um, you know, you, you do things for, you know, kind of, kind of everyday reasons. And then he gets swallowed up in this thing. I don't know. You know, we becoming a rat is about, about as bad a thing as you can be, I think, you know? I, I think um, so it's one thing to say, I'm a communist. Right. I hope you know, not. confessing that I'm not saying I am, but it's I one know. thing to go in front of a committee and say, you know, well, yeah, yeah, I am a member of the Communist Party. What are you going to do about it? But that's not, you know, after a while, that's not what they were asking. They were they would haul, haul you in and show a photograph of you and five other people. And they know the names of the five other people in the photograph, but they want you to say the words. and. Uh, that's where I think why the blacklist is so resonant because, you know, would, you know, would you have the courage well, to brings... say, uh, you know, I'll, I'll throw my academic career away. I'll throw my podcast career away for people in a photograph. I kind of don't know. And they know the names, but I don't, I don't want them to make me say those names. Thank God. I'm not popular. I have no career. Um, 
But I think it brings up a moral question where it just goes, I mean, if you could interview somebody from the beginning of their career, like, I will do anything to get into Hollywood. And then towards the end, I mean, is the person just like, I'll do anything to get out at this point after having that broken kind of career? It might be a good, successful one. But I mean, how many people are happy on the surface? I mean, one of my favorite comedians was happy on the surface, then ended up taking his own life, Robin Williams. Um, I would not have expected that in a million years. Um there's, you know, people go through like a different scenario. It's just would be interesting to interview someone from the beginning compared to the end if they wanted to get out or not. But I mean, the moral question, are you going to stick to your beliefs and double down on something you believe in and fight for something you believe in and give up everything? I mean, I only know one celebrity to ever do that. And it's Rick Moranis, but it was, that wasn't even a moral belief thing. He just did what a lot of people wouldn't do and decided I'm going to raise my kids after his wife got sick. And he gave up, I mean, at a peak per performance, in my opinion, um, at least a peak time for him. And a lot of people would not give up because the attraction of Hollywood is something where it's like you got blinders on. You don't see all the dangers and you don't see all this. You end up, I mean, Elvis would be the best example. That person is the first guy to ever walk through fame. Like he stepped in every single pothole where everyone could have been like, don't do that. But nobody gave him any warnings. He didn't know what to look out for. And then with so much hindsight and history now, we can see all the things that were going on. And there's still many more out there, many other perspectives that are like, this isn't just a simple, you go to Hollywood, you get a ticket. Next thing you know, you're on camera and then you're on someone's poster in their room or something. This is like, no, you got a whole complex issues. Who you associate with what you're going to be doing, what you're going to be saying. And even just you hang out at a party, you're hanging out with someone that knew someone. There you go. You're done. Yeah. Well, you know, they're raising money for something. And, you know, as a celebrity, you're called in because, you know, they're raising money and you think it's like a good thing. And then you, you get there and you go, oh, some of the people who are also called in are under investigation. And suddenly you're in a situation where you thought you were raising money for a children's hospital and it's like, oh, crap, you know, that guy's here. And, and uh, you know, who, you know, it, even if you're not, and even if nothing will come of this, really, you know, who needs the aggravation of getting called in and having to name? And again, you know, it, uh, it, I, 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 I think I can look back, you know, let's say 15 years ago when my kids were, you know, not yet in college and I'm, you know, I, I'm making a living and I'm, I have, you know, a house and I'm, I'm trying to get them <laughs> launched into the world. And all I have to do is name a couple of names and they get to go to college. You know, do I have the courage to stick to my principles and say, yeah, I'm not writing. I'm not going to be a rat. Send me to jail. I don't care. Um, you know, that, that, I think that's why, the blacklist remains kind of resonant because it's very easy to put yourself in their position and just say, you know, what I have had, you know, the the courage to do what they did. I I'd like to think I would, but I I don't know. I hope so. Yeah, I mean, that's it's asking to give up your own career just to save someone else's skin. Oh, and also you you know if you've got children, your responsibility to your children. I mean, I teach college, you know, I, my skill set is pretty, pretty narrow. You know, what, what's the next thing I could do? I guess I could find a different job, but I don't know what it would be. We're going to get you um, documentaries. That's what we're going to get you to do. We're going to make a couple of documentaries on your books. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, hopefully from your lips to uh, producers here.
Yeah. <laughs> uh, John, seriously, I appreciate the time you gave me to be able to talk on my show, man. Is there a place where people can find any of your links? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm on the Oregon State University link. I, I'm not, I have like no social media presence. That's a good thing. I don't have. Uh, I no, try no, my it's best. a good thing. Yeah, I think it is a good thing, um, and I kind of don't need it at my stage of my career. Uh, so I'm I'm there, and um, my books are available. Uh, I have an Amazon page, so if you look up J O N Lewis, that's how I spell my first name. Um, you can find my books there, and my two latest books are from University of California Press, so I'm on their website too. Well, I'm going to link all your links in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you, and thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.